Welcome to the NutraCast, a production by Nutra Ingredients USA. I'm Danielle Masterson. Thank you for joining me here on the NutraCast, where we talk and share insights from inside the nutrition industry. So in recent months, the FDA has been trying to figure out how to get the CBD market under control with the focus on safety. Patrick McCarthy says the FDA is not going to move forward on regulating CBD until it has some data on specific research. McCarthy is the CEO of Valid Care. That's a cannabis-focused health and wellness research company that is leading an industry-sponsored study for the FDA. He joins us now. Patrick, thank you for coming on the NutriCast. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about this research that you're working on. Sure. So um, the research we're working on is to answer the questions that the FDA has, has enunciated to industry and to Congress, where they have concerns around safety for both liver toxicity as well as uh, for any drowsiness that may occur from CBD based on the evidence they've seen to date. And so, um, you know, well, we looked at that and said, how can we help? We have a real world evidence-based platform where we can collect data from consumers or participants, however we want to look at it. Um, but when we start talking about liver toxicity, that means you have to take blood tests. And um, drowsiness, of course, can be reported by a consumer on a scale. So we went to FDA and, and spoke with them and got an understanding of what they're looking for. In a perfect world, they'd like to see 18 months in a very controlled environment. But there is no perfect study. So what we were able to do is work with them and come up with an approach where we can bring multiple vendors together who can fund a study and then take data from people that are already using CBD products and at the end of a specific time, ask them to submit for a blood test and see exactly what their liver function looks like. And then we measure that against what we see in the normal population. And believe it or not, about two and a half percent of us as American citizens are walking around with some sort of a, a liver issue. So what we're looking is for a deviation from that two and a half percent to see if there is a meaningful delta. So something really at a four and a half percent or higher would mean there's something going on. And we've got four different types of liver panels that are being looked at so we can compare them. There's ALT, ALP, and Billy Ribbon are just three of them. They you know more medical clinical terms there, but those are the measures that, um, that are being paid attention to. And with that, we can look at otherwise healthy adults that are using products and get a gauge for do we have a public health issue today or not. The, the aim of this study then is not to get one product actually approved it's to give FDA data across the board in a big enough population where they can understand if there is an issue or if there's not, and, um, and what type of product is it? Is it a, an isolate? Is it full spectrum? Is it with capsules? Is it with tinctures? So we have different products, and we're looking at a population of at least 600 people. So it's a pretty good size population to draw from. And right now we have six uh, national brands that are working with us. So pretty excited to get that kicked off. We're right now working on the infrastructure set up. And uh, once this lovely COVID situation slows down, we'll go live. But we're going to wait to deploy until after everybody's known to be safe. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask how that has impacted things. So you said about 600 people, you're working with several different brands. What have you learned so far from the, the 600 people? Is there a certain age range or demographic that you're seeing a lot of? 
Well, we haven't engaged this population yet, but in Q4 of last year, we actually took our platform, which is called CBD Plus Me, that is a market intelligence platform that a number of brands subscribe to. And we collected data across 15 brands. And what we did find is that the average user of CBD products is somewhere between 44 and 46 years old, slightly skewed to females over males. And most people are using products for some sort of a health and wellness purpose. Uh, we actually submitted all this data to FDA and um, that's actually what's, what started our conversation. But with that, what we saw is there's a preponderance of folks are, are taking CBD to help them either with mental health or um, and mood or anxiety or some sort of chronic pain. That's the, the large majority of folks. And about 75% of those people are actually experiencing some sort of positive effect, um, or at least that's what they report. Another 20% report a secondary benefit. And we only saw about 3% side effects, which were mainly GI or gastrointestinal and or some scratchy throat, but no adverse events in the population. And that population was over 2,000 uh, participants. So it's a really big end. That's um, fascinating. You said a lot of people are taking it for anxiety and stress. Yes. Um, with Those are subcategories. We look at six large major categories, but anxiety and or stress would fall under mental health from our perspective. And they report um, that, and, and that actually that population is more heavily skewed to female than male, but um, that's the, the reported reason for taking. And it's about 20 to 25% of the population surveyed was, um, was using for those reasons. And that was Q4. So I can only imagine even more people are probably uh, taking it for anxiety right now. Yeah, well, I, I can tell you in, in talking with the brands that we work with every day, those that are, those that are doing e-commerce sales are seeing an awful lot of folks are very much focused on their mental health and their wellness. And I think it's really important. There's actually a company that was saying CBD is good for mental health and FDA immediately got a letter out to them and said, stop doing that. You're promoting it as a drug. And so I think everybody needs to be careful and mindful. Do not promote that way. It doesn't mean that folks aren't taking it that way, but, um, but we, we have seen a, a good number of folks are taking it for those reasons and they're reporting that it's working for whatever their, their rationale is. So a lot of attention to it. Uh, on the flip side, I saw an article, Dr. Danny Gordon out of the UK is an integrated uh, medicine doc, and she works an awful lot with um, homeopathic and, and natural remedies, including cannabis. She put forward some, uh, some research on LinkedIn that really advised folks, especially in and around this COVID crisis, to stay away from high THC products that would be the traditional medical marijuana side. There's some really interesting effects that THC has. While it may have some anti-inflammatory properties, it could inhibit the body from doing what it needs to do to fight COVID. So, you know, a lot of science here to be explored. Yeah, that's an interesting find. I was going to ask, I don't know how familiar you are with UK laws and over there in Europe, but are they in a similar boat as the US in terms of regulation or do they have a better grasp on, on this? It's a great question, and we're very, very active in the UK right now. So you have UK and EU going through Brexit, where they had been working under one commission for foods, and CBD has been deemed novel food, which has 
a specific path to go through for approval processes, typically 18 to 24 months. But um, UK in March came forward with their own separate regulations and there's some questions around what exactly is going to have to be submitted, but there's what's called the EFSA for the food supplement application that has to be submitted for each brand. And so here's how it plays. If you have a product on the shelf right now and you get your EFSA submitted by the end of March next year, your product will be allowed to be, stay on the shelf. And if it gets approved, it can stay. If the EFSA does not meet the requirements, they could remove you from the shelves. If you don't get on the shelves before end of March next year, then you have to have your EFSA approved in order to sell in the UK. And this is strictly for the UK. Um, now, the, the twist here is typically animal data has been fined for a novel food. But with the UK's recent regulations, they've come forward and said, we actually want to see allergenicity, so understanding allergies, adverse effects, gene toxicity, and they want to understand uptake metabolism and excretion properties of CBD products. So in talking with attorneys over there, they're saying this means we have to have human data. Some of the regulatory consultancies over there are saying, no, we don't think so. And others are actually talking to the regulatory body and they're saying they're not sure that they know what they want yet. So there's a little bit of confusion around exactly what has to be submitted in what they call their dossier. But the UK is calling it a novel food. And there is a process by which to go through to get granted a license after next March. The rest of EU already has novel food and doesn't have this heightened level. Uh, one caveat to it all, which is really different than the US, is if you use old-fashioned water and um, it's either a cold or a hot water extraction process for hemp, because that's such an old and traditional practice there, if your product comes through, through to market that way, you don't have to even qualify as a novel food. It's just a pre-existing food product and you can go and stay on the market right really? now. Yeah, so the extraction process really matters. So if you're going with CO2 or, or ETO where you can mass produce and there's, you know, there's lots of better standards and qualities associated with that, you immediately fall into novel foods and you're subjecting yourself to these, these other things. The, the other piece we learned is once you do that, you do have five years of protection for your product. So if I'm a U.S. manufacturer and I'm working, uh, say I'm a brand and I'm working with an extractor here, I'm going to need to basically get married to that extractor because I'm going to have to demonstrate from seed to finished product and have a consistent recipe, for lack of a better way, word, to put on the market over there is if I change processors or anything with my configuration or my composition over time, I have to reapply. Um, mm. But once, once an application approved, I have five years of protection for my formulation. So that looks a lot more like what a, a drug would look like here in the state. So food is the most direct route in the UK. Food is the least direct route in the, in the USA. The FDA has, has said, um, you know, their, their recent comments are leaning toward some sort of a supplement, but they've got some caveats there. But their commentary to Congress in the past few weeks, the, the shortest paragraph was around food because they have the, the most concerns there. There's just the least control um, around safety. So interesting how disparate the UK and the US is. Yeah. And but, I'm just listening to 
how complex this is and wondering how you keep up with all this. <laughs> it's really hard. And, you know, I've, I've talked to a number of brands and processors this week that have, you know, they actually said to us, wow, could you help quarterback this situation for us? Because country by country, keeping up with the regulations is hard. And, you know, they need to understand, do I, do I go into the UK? And if I do, do I go in as a food? Do I go in as a pet? supply deal, you could go in as a cosmetic. Each is a different choice with different regulatory paths. And of course, in the UK right now, I think food is the easiest, but it's still an 18 to 24 month process for approval. So there's mm-hmm. nothing really quick, but this this is going to be a regulated you know field that already is to some extent, but I think we need to get ready for science is going to matter whether it's here in the States or across the EU or South America or, or you know, Pan-Asia. It's um, the, the the science is going to matter. Yeah, and with so many people researching this and working on regulations and, and getting it under control, is the U.S. and Europe and other countries are they working together at all? Are they sharing information? Because it sounds like they could save a lot of resources and time if they kind of join forces. Yeah, that's a really good question. So. I know FDA has said that they've been looking at a lot of the global data, and I know Israel, for one, has been fantastic about having a quasi-registry and making a lot of data available. But most of the data, if we look at this this market, it's, you know, the word cannabis or the, the name cannabis is the plant for hemp or marijuana. Most research has been done on marijuana to date, and most of the the highest level research or clinical research has been with GW Pharma, who of course has Epidiolex on the market. And so that's very skewed toward a drug side. The challenge is, well, last December and uh, when the Farm Act went through, everything became legal and then FDA asked for more data six months later. And while they asked for it, it's a little disingenuous because you've not been allowed to do this research on hemp at all. It was, it was illegal six months prior. So now we're a little over a year after. And to expect people to get really good research put together in that short of a period of time on something that's otherwise been taboo, it's pretty hard to do. So um, I'd say companies and, and countries have shared data, but the specific asks on the data have changed, and um, and much of it is based on what came forward with GW Pharma on the, mm-hmm. the liver tox, and and when you look at that, you know, I'm I have a science background, I'm in business, I happen to be an attorney, so I, I don't want to bias this in any way, shape, or form. But those were really sick kids. They were on anticonvulsants, and they were also on anti-seizure medicine and on some immunotherapeutics, and so that was a really tough population, and they were fed really high doses and liver toxicity happened. We just don't know, does that happen at lower doses and you know, a more normal population? And nobody's been able to, well, first it was illegal to do that research. Now it's not, but it takes time. That's where we're excited to help. I don't think industry has planned that they're gonna to have to set aside a budget like a pharma company or like other you know, science-based companies where you're taking 10 to 20% of your budget and putting it towards science to, to make sure your products go through a regulatory process. And I think that's the new reality of the marketplace. Right. I was going to say timing is one issue, but another is money to back it up. So where is this money coming from? That's a really good question. So for our research, we actually, we pooled money from each of the vendors. We needed a minimum of six and we got it. We still, with COVID slowing things down, we could actually recruit up to four more vendors and get a thousand consumers in the study, which would be phenomenal. But 
each of them is putting in over a hundred thousand dollars. And if you compare that to a pharma budget, they'd be putting in 500 to a million dollars. So we've really helped dollar cost average this to get it started. But if you want to do individual research on a go forward at this level, each company really has to look at the reality of the situation and say, wow, this is going to be a quarter of a million to maybe $700,000 to do this. It's very real money. So um, laying your bets on specific products and on, on formulations and on markets becomes really, really strategic decisions because that is a lot of money. And if you place the wrong bet, you've, you know, it's, there can be some really bad effects. And, you know, coming out of my, my background was pharma med product, I, uh, healthcare IT and then med device. And so I've, I've seen these type of investments and made these types of investments before. And I, I get it. It's, it, it takes real calculation. This is no longer a mom and pop market. You need to be calibrated. You've got a really unique perspective on this and sort of, you know, you can kind of see it through the lens of a lot of different angles. What ultimately is the goal of this? Obviously, you know, you want to promote safety and provide some data, but ultimately, what does everybody want to see come from all this research? Yeah, well, from our perspective at ValidCare, we just want to know the truth. Data can be presented in lots of different ways, but if we can objectively capture this data so that we know the truth for the American consumer, that's our job. Hopefully, well, at the end of the day, whatever the data says, and we can give that to FDA, the purpose there is to help them regulate appropriately. They've got a lot of choices. This could go down the supplement market. It could go down food. It could go OTC monograph. It could go down all of those or just one of those. But getting them data where they feel secure enough to actually go down a specific path is our ultimate goal. Secondarily, is to take this data and give it back to each of the brands so that they have it for their products. When FDA makes a decision, each of these participants will be able to reuse this data to submit it if it's an IND under a drug, an NDI under a supplement, or whatever it is. We're preserving their right and and blinding the information so that they're not sacrificing their IP in the meantime. Mm -hmm. And so, So that's the secondary effect here. The third, as UK and, and EU clarify what they're all about, we're, we're hopeful that this data will be able to be used over there too, which would be great to, to be able to help more formulations and, and, and repurpose. So um, there, there's been some skepticism. You know, we're putting all our money out there and everybody else gets a net benefit. But this is very much like in 2000, I happen to be part of what became Global Healthcare Exchange, where we had Abbott and Baxter and J&J and GE and Medtronic come together for the good of the industry. They, they really didn't like each other and competed on, on multiple <laughs> levels, but they knew they had to put together an e-commerce and market intelligence solution in order to reduce cost and, and help hospitals. This is very similar in terms of research where I think the first movers here are going to win because first, they're going to have the data on their own. Second, they're going to look like white knights coming in, whether they like it or not. These are going to be the good guts and they're going to show that they're grownups and the, the science matters. And you've got to believe that consumers are going to trust them more and the government may trust them a little bit more for being that first mover. And they may be doing good for, for some others, but moreover, doing right now, the industry has to do well for the industry. That's what we see. Mm-hmm. Sorry for the long soliloquy there. 
<laughs> well, no, it makes perfect sense. You do have to take one for the team every now and again. And I do think that ultimately they will come out looking like white knights. Do you have any predictions for the path, which way it's going to go? Yeah. So um, I don't know. I, I, I do. Number one, number two, I think it's really, really important that anything that the FDA writes, we need to read and really read really carefully. They, um, they've been very consistent all the way along. And, you know, we see different industry bodies want to complain and say, oh, you're obstructionist or this or that. But, but FDA is a regulatory body. They're there for safety of humans and animals around food, drug, cosmetics. That's their job. So looking for them to get creative is not something that I think is in, in a reality-based uh, mindset. I think what we've got to understand is they have a job to do. And until they have data, they're not going to do things until they have the data they need. Mm -hmm. So but with the data they need, they've, they've indicated food thus far is a long shot because there's just too many foods. If you think you could have CBD and popcorn on a hamburger um, in a soft drink and otherwise, and while you may ingest that all um, through your digestive tract and it goes through your liver for metabolism, what happens if you vape on top of that or if you take a sublingual dose of something else? And they, they need to understand all those ramifications. So they were pretty clear in their letter to Congress a few weeks ago that food's probably the longest way off. They did suggest that they could go down the dietary supplement path. And I think that's the most likely route, but as they said that, they also said they, they've got real concerns about dietary supplements generally. And with CBD, they, they would have concerns as well because of the current situation is once a supplement's allowed out there, FDA really loses control and oversight unless you come back to try to make some sort of structural claim or another type of claim. And then they'll police on that. And I don't think they're confident enough to just give a blanket dietary supplement. So I think my sense is it'll be a supplement, but there's going to be some rigor around it. And this may open a little bit of the, those in the nutraceutical or supplement side may think this Pandora's box, but I think FDA will use this as an opportunity to get some more control around other, other product categories where they have other concerns. And I, I think that's going to be the give and the take. The other area is I could see at a strength-based, at a you know, milligram or otherwise, that they might do an OTC monograph like they did with ibuprofen and Advil over time. So, you know, if you're old enough to remember back like I did, Motrin used to be prescription only, but you could get Advil over the counter. And ultimately, after they had enough data, they said, okay, you can get it all over the counter. Um, so I, I could see that happening. The, the challenge is we've got folks now making synthetics, and I think synthetics and isolates will always stay a drug. Other than that, when we get into nanotech, I think they're going to have to scratch their head on that a little bit. The, the science around nanotech is um, it's going to be challenging for them where you take a very small dose but get the same effect as a traditional larger strength dosage. And they're, they're going to have to think through that. Mm -hmm. So, Sorry, complex, um, complex answer, but I think the most direct route will be some sort of dietary supplement with uh, some entanglements. There are so many layers to this. I mean, it's, yeah, it basically is Pandora's box. And so I'm curious how they are, if, it, if they do go the supplement route, how they're going to police it. And I feel like the FDA is already stretched thin. So for them to add on even more things to do, I'm curious how that's going to play out. Well, you just hit the nail on the head. So 
if you, you do look and I, anybody listening to this, I really, really, if you're interested, I highly suggest you read the letter to Congress on FDA's report. They were very clear that they have enforcement discretion, but they have no budget. And so for now, and what we've seen to date is they write a lot of letters to people that are outside the, the lines and are making medical claims. And what they're saying openly in this letter to Congress is if you want us to police this, we're going to need a budget for it as well, regardless what avenue they go down. And so the Farm Bill actually provided $2 million in funding for pilot projects, but it was all limited to agriculture and, and growth and harvesting, nothing around human consumption or finished product. And that was you know, really, really unfortunate. And again, this is why if there's going to be research right now, it's got to be funded by industry because the federal government has not gotten it. And we're looking, you know, whether we're talking to, um, you know, the leader McConnell's office or, or others that are very supportive of hemp in Congress, it's a long path to go through to legislate and to get funding, especially in an election year. And, and now you add the pandemic on top of it. Uh, maybe there's a stimulus there, but there's to call out science in particular is, is going to have to be a major focus with you know more lobbying efforts than what we have from the, the few different associations that are working on this right now. COVID-19 definitely added more challenges onto an already complex situation. You know, they recently passed the small business loan here in the U.S., and I'm curious because, of course, as we know, these businesses are not considered legal on a federal basis. So how do these loans affect the cannabis industry? Are they going to have any type of relief in this pandemic? Yeah. So again, great questions. Um, a traditional marijuana company or a company that supports a marijuana-based cannabis company is not going to get relief. So if your revenues are directly tied to the plant or indirectly tied to the sale of the plant, then you are not going to be eligible. Now, if, if you're, you know, you're selling pens and paper or toilet paper, sure, that, that's all fine. But if you're, you're selling grow materials or lights or whatever that, that happen to go toward that, you are not going to be eligible. And that's strictly for marijuana. But for hemp, the good news is because hemp is federally legal, actually I'm looking at a document here as I'm talking to you, and this is signed by the Associate Administrator of the Office of Entrepreneurial Development at SBA, call out directly that hemp is a legal business and it's, as long as you're not directly or indirectly in the marijuana business, any and all of your, um, your payroll and expenses that would otherwise apply for other businesses do apply for hemp. I don't know what happens if you are in both businesses, and I know there are a number of, of companies that do support both marijuana and hemp. But most of those, as I, I guess, that I'm familiar with do have different corporations under which they run those products. So um, one of their corporate entities should be able to take it and, and run at least the one that would be the, the hemp producer. Yeah, this outbreak has really highlighted the vague definition of essential business and, you know, what implications the pandemic could have on cannabis and how it's interpreted. It's bringing up so many different issues that otherwise probably wouldn't have been looked at too much. 
No, you're right. And, you know, being in Colorado, this, of course, is a, a medical and rec state for marijuana. And of course, we're federally legal for hemp. But we've been on lockdown for a little over a week. And dispensaries have been called essential businesses, as have liquor stores, which, you know, it's sad to th- think that if, if you did close a liquor, liquor store and somebody's a severe alcoholic, you, they could go into some really, really serious DTs without that liquor. Mm-hmm. Um, on the on the flip side, medicinal effects of cannabis and or hemp are are being acknowledged at least at the state level here, where folks are um, are able to um, still get product. And there's actually I've I've got to do a little more reading on this. I knew it came legal to deliver different forms of cannabis in in uh, Colorado this past year, and I, I saw there's a vendor actually doing that here in the past couple of weeks. I don't know all the ins and outs, but glad to see that if folks need this and if it is working for them for whatever the, the rationale that they can get it. Absolutely. And do you think that this pandemic is going to change how cannabis is interpreted? Do you think that there's going to be more consistency between the federal and state level? On c- cannabis at the marijuana level, boy, I that's a tough one. I um, because we've worked on that side of the the market in the past as well. There's such a stigma still, and there's there's a geopolitical issue. Then you've got your pharma versus um, nutraceutical versus supplement issue, that it just goes really really deep in money and politics. That I don't know that it gets hurried along as much as we might like. Um, I'd love to see that we actually get broader research on cannabis at the marijuana level and, and understand it, even if it stays as a drug, let's understand it federally. And I know there's been small movement there, but I don't see anything here that's going to accelerate it. I do think we might see some acceleration on on hemp relief for companies and then for more use of CBD and or more science around other cannabinoids from hemp. And that could be really, really good. It just excludes the THC component of the plant, which if there has to be taking one for the team near term where, where that's a carve out, I guess that's all right if we can make progress on the other end. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you? I know that you are probably overwhelmed with the amount of research that you're working on, but do you have anything down the pipeline? Yeah. So, um, you know, like everybody else, we're really struggling in this market. We've had a number of, of customers that were using our market intelligence that have said, hey, right now we can't afford to pay people and we're, we're going to need to take a break. And so from a revenue perspective, we're challenged. We're actually going to apply for that loan that you talked about. Um, so we're in the same boat as everyone else. But what we're seeing is between this safety study we're doing here and then working with companies to understand the UK in the near term, we think there's an awful lot of science just on CBD. Um, beyond that, though, we've a number of uh, branded companies are really interested in CBG and CBN and starting to study those products or those, those molecules to understand them. And, uh, of course, those are not addressed at all in the farm bill. It's only CBD. And so the whole question <laughs> gets to be raised again with, what is it? Is it cannabis? Is it not? And is it a is it a drug? Is it a supplement? What do we do? So we're excited to be able to go and do that level of research with them and start down these other tracks as we start to explore these other cannabinoids. And as you well know, there's almost a hundred different cannabinoids to 
Uh, Patrick, that's a it. whole other podcast. <laughs> Isn't it? I'll tell you. There's a ton there. But um, but I'm loving is at least those that have money in their pocket and thinking about the future are starting to go down those um, those avenues. So we're excited about the science and still, like I said earlier, getting after the truth and figuring out what it is. And that's all you can do. Research yeah. is important. Thank you so much for providing all this complex information and breaking it down in, in a way that a lot of people could probably better understand. I, I hope you appreciate it. My wife just glosses over and says, talk to somebody else. So <laughs> <I hope. laughs> no, this is, it's really, really complex and it's, it's a heck of a puzzle, but it's, it's a puzzle worth going after. So um, I really, hopefully everybody stays hopeful after this. Keep doing the right thing. Don't make any medical claims. If you are a product manufacturer or otherwise, and get ready to invest in science and you know do the right thing. That's this is all about truth and integrity for this market going forward. And so it's it's time to to make sure you're doing the right thing if you weren't already. Definitely. Patrick McCarthy of Valid Care, thank you so much for joining us here on the NutraCast and you take care. Thanks so much. You too. Thanks for having me and stay safe and healthy. If you like what you just heard, you can subscribe to the NutraCast on iTunes. And for even more Nutra-related content, you can always head to NutraIngredients-USA.com. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm Danielle Masterson. Please stay healthy, and I'll catch you here on the NutraCast next week.